Good vibrations, take one. You're listening to Good Vibrations, a Beach Boys music program, sponsored by Endless Summer Hi, this is Brian Wilson, and you're listening to Good Vibrations with David Beer. Sister, die of my 
Oh, what a great song. That was Spread This Feeling from Rob Bonfilio's Trouble Again, released earlier this year. Hi, welcome to episode 26 of Good Vibrations. I'm your host, David Beard. Been away a little bit and trying to get caught up. I've got several episodes that are becoming this season, this holiday season, and this one I wanted to get out. You know, I'm, I'm behind in getting this one out. So my apologies to Rob. We actually did this interview back in May. And uh, so I've been trying to get this out uh, uh, for the listeners now for for quite a while. Uh, just want to give you a couple of things about Rob. Um, <laughs> to start off the show, Brian introduced, you know, introduced to so, which was very nice for Brian to do that liner. That's actually Rob's father-in-law. He's, uh, for those who don't know, Rob is the husband of Carney Wilson. So one of the things, and that's how Rob kind of got on my radar, to be quite honest about the whole thing. Rob was on my radar because I knew of him because he played in California Saga that opened for the Beach Boys during their 50th reunion tour back in 2012. So I knew Rob's name. I didn't realize that he had released an album a few years back. In fact, he's got a total of four. The first one he released in 2008 was called Bring on the Happy. Then in 2012, he released Mea Culpa. I hope I'm saying that correctly. And in 2014, Freeway. And again, this year, Trouble Again. And the, it's a really interesting thing. That one, of, one of the things when I, when I became aware of Rob this year, or I, again, I knew who he was back in 2012, I didn't realize he had three other albums out. And I really didn't know much about him. And that's kind of what I wanted to do uh, in this episode, is share his background with you. Because once I heard his CD, I, I, was, I was really really dialed into it, and I really made a connection with it. It just reminds me of Utopia, you know, Rundgren, Utopia, Kiss, Cheap Trick. It's got jazz influences in it. Now, so one of the first things, because the fact that he is Carney's, you know, he's married to Carney. So one of the things I asked him early on in emails was, who, you know, is Carney on this? Because I just immediately, you know, automatically assume she must be singing background on some of this because it sounds so good. The harmonies are so good. In fact, Rob said, no, I do everything. So, <laughs> which is pretty astounding when you just get over the fact we just listened to this incredible song, Spread This Feeling, track four on Trouble Again. So I wanted to get, you know, usually my umbrella with these episodes has to do with someone in the Beach Boys world, whether they be a book author or one of the Beach Boys band members or a music director for Brian or Mike or whatever it is, is typically in the Beach Boys world or that umbrella. Rob really doesn't fall under that umbrella, although he is currently touring in Brian's band. Well, Brian's on tour now. But what you're going to hear today, we're going to find out about Rob's background, and then we're going to hear a couple of more tracks. Uh, actually, three I've got lined up. So I want let's get into this conversation with Rob. He can tell you some about his background, uh, you know, what influenced him early on and how it all began. And I really hope you enjoy this because this album, Trouble Again, is, I'm, I'm prone to say this, and I say it a lot, but it really, it's really true. This album is special. So let's get underway with Rob, and here we go. Where it started for you and at what age? I know it's going to go back a ways, but uh, because I'm not familiar with you, and I think most of my listening audience would not be familiar with you. Um, even though they would know your name by now and probably more than likely know your face, I want to kind of go back and, uh, let's start with what was the first instrument you picked up? Was it guitar? The first instrument that I, yeah, that I officially, air quote, plays, played was the guitar, yes, and I was 11, but before that I always wanted to play, you know, a violin, I wanted to 
musical family. So I didn't have instruments available to me. So um, when I did find guitar, um, you know, it was kind of, I was starting from scratch, you know, because there was no family influence. Okay. In lessons and all that. So, yeah. So to make a long, uh, a long answer longer, uh, guitar. And when you were living, what year is that? Give me a sense of... Um, let's see. First guitar was, I want to say, 1981. Got it. And so, at that time, what are your influences that you're listening to? or your? Because back in around 81, vinyl is still a very big thing. Picture sleeves with 45s were actually kind of still quite popular. Sure. Well, I was, you know, I was certainly a record listening fan since I was three or two, you know, mm-hmm. but I didn't ever kind of translate that into an instrument until seventh grade. So by the time seventh grade rolled around, man, that was a great time for music. This was 79, 80, 81. Um, you know, um, I was way into Led Zeppelin, um, the Beatles, of course, the Who, uh, the Rolling Stones. Um, I loved Neil Young's Live Rush. That came out around that time. Uh, I loved uh, Tom Petty. Damn, the Torpedoes came out around that time as well. Um, And I was into, yes, they they came out with an album called Drama. And it was like a really, it was kind of a a red herring in their catalog because uh, it wasn't John Anderson singing, it was uh, Trevor Horn. And um, I just love that. I still to this day love that album. But, oh yeah, and uh, Todd Rundgren and Utopia, big, big fan. Uh, Who else? Wow. I think that's, And how soon was it from eleven, where you start playing guitar, to where yeah. you're where you're really serious? So, were you really? Did you just dabble around with guitar for a few years, or did you get right into guitar lessons and become pretty serious about um, it right away? Yeah, I did start with guitar lessons right away um, because I think a couple of friends and myself we had an imaginary band that we put together in study hall, and I was chosen to be rhythm guitar player. So I kind of had to take it seriously at that point. I was like, well. I I'm going to be in a band. I better learn how to play. Um, the band, we never actually played. We, it, was, it only, you know, it was on paper, basically, and in our minds, and our fantasies. So uh, I did study guitar for about a year, and then I quit because I, I was a little bit disillusioned by, you know, the, the, the staleness of the process, and I guess the teacher I had at the time. But I did continue to play, and there was a lot of, a number of great players in my school, in my junior high school and high school, and we all kind of influenced each other and, and um, you know, we pushed each other to get better and better and better. And by that time, I was back into taking lessons again, and um, this was probably 1984, 1983 or 84, and I was studying, I began to study jazz. So um, by the time 1986 rolled around, I had graduated high school, and I know I'm jumping ahead of myself here, sorry, tell me to stop if I'm no, it's just, you're doing great with stream of consciousness. Okay. <laughs> so, by, okay, so by 1986, I was pretty heavily into jazz. And at that point in time, I went to Berklee College of Music in Boston. Um, I was there from 86 to 90, and I listened to and studied nothing but jazz. So there we are. We're up to 1990. Yeah, so you're, um, but you're listening to jazz yeah. now. Who are your... If you're studying and listening to just nothing but jazz, who are you, who are the influences that you're really paying the most attention to at this point? 
John Coltrane, Miles Davis, all the Blue Note greats, Joe Henderson. Um, in terms of guitar, you know, Wes Montgomery, Jim Hall, Pat Martino, John Schofield, another big influence. John Abercrombie was a great influence. Um, who else? Pat Metheny, of course, Mike Stern. These are all guitar guys, but, but basically everything from, you know, bebop from the early, you know, mid fifties bebop through 70s fusion, you know, everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Made it all up, made it up. And I, you know, I'm an avid record collector and CD collector, so I just bought, I just, I remember being at school and just, instead of using my money that I had for dinner, I would go to the record store. And buy you sound like me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a romantic, <laughs> I have a, that romantic feeling involved with going into a record store. I just have that. I understand totally. I skipped my senior prom and and went to a record convention. Nice. <laughs> yeah, my parents gave me money for the prom, and the girl I wanted to go with said no. So I said, "Well, screw that. I've I've got other things to spend this money on." Awesome. <laughs> so awesome. Love yes. it. <laughs> um. So you're at, at what point? It's this then. You're you're into the nineties. Did did music videos or the advent of MTV or any of that element or the theatrics of of that uh, part of the music industry have any type of effect on you? Well, I was certainly very well aware. You know, I remember when MTV started. I remember when that was a big thing. That was what eighty one, something like that. Yeah, it was early eighties for uh, sure. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, but we didn't have cable. I do recall it. We didn't have cable, so I would only ever see it when I was at a friend's house or, or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I guess it was an influence. It was certainly it was certainly a little bit more than just novelty. Uh, you know, I, I also recall watching Friday night videos. This was even before MTV. We would stay up late Friday night to watch, you know, music videos. Whoa, you know, this, what, what, a, what a cool thing to be able to see, you know, your favorite musicians or whatever in video format. This is shortly before MTV. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know how much of an influence it Okay, the reason I ask that is because I, in listening to your new album, there are a lot of moments that really crystallized visually to me. That that I and, and we'll get to that in a little bit about. Oh, geez, I wonder if there's a specific example of someone in in Rob's life where this derives from, because it there's a lot of really kind of visceral and visual elements that when I listen to this, that you know, I'm kind of like, huh. Interesting, because the and and that's why I hear these influence of all these other bands is because, like example, Cheap Trick was really good at kind of as was Rundgren at you know really good at kind of conveying a visual, um, without ever without ever asking you know without ever making a music video. Exactly, and I gotta say before you know before the guitar before I picked up the guitar I was. From age, I want to say age nine through eleven, I was a fanatic for week. And then from age, say twelve through maybe fourteen, I was a cheap trick freak. <laughs> okay, I lost I lost you for just a second before you t- said, oh. said the cheap trick. Who was the first one you were into? Kiss. Kiss. Okay, me too. Okay, so that. <laughs> oh yeah. I have Kiss to blame for being into the Beach Boys. And and I'll tell you why, because if you remember Kiss Alive too, 
three live sides, and then the fourth side was studio tracks that were either leftovers or specifically for that album. And one of the songs they covered was Dave Clark's Five, Any Way You Want It. And that song, and I had no idea it was Dave Clark Five. It was just Kiss as far as I was concerned. And I remember going to junior high school and just singing that song over and over and over. And so now when I look back at that time in my life, I realize what led me to oldies, what led me to getting into the older music and that genre was Kiss. So, yeah. And then I, I also went from Kiss to Cheap Trick. Yeah, yeah. I think it was the theatrical yeah. element of it. Absolutely. You know, Rick Nielsen's craziness and just, the, yeah, Bunny, Bunny's look, just the whole thing. I just, I was just nuts about it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Love Gun, <laughs> Destroyer, Love Gun, <laughs> Dream Police, you know. <laughs> John, say no more. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so now you're, it, at what point do you, what is, what, I think let's skip ahead a little bit. Let, when when do you join your first band? Uh, well, my first band proper was in high school. We were called Triton. Um, this is probably 1984, and you know we were influenced by like Deep Purple and kind of like more more not prog all the way, but more progressive rock. Okay. Um, and that was just, you know, that was a few years in high school, good time, whatever, and that was done. And then after high school for a year, before I went to college, I was in a top 40 band, and I got, you know, it was a whole new world to me. So I was playing all the hits of 1986, um, playing bars at 17 and 18 years old, mm-hmm. um, which was which was fun. And it was a learning process and, you know, a wonderful experience. Um, and then I didn't, I didn't join another band until after Berkeley. And as soon as Berkeley was done, I went back to Philadelphia, um, and I ended up uh, joining a like an alternative rock band that was based in New York City, and I used to just drive back and forth, um, and that lasted for a couple of years. Uh, and then in 1993, uh, a few of us guys got together in Philadelphia, and we formed a band called Wanderlust. And Wanderlust was, uh, we were lucky enough to sign to RCA Records. Um, in 1994, and we got to tour uh, the United States a number of times. We um, we opened up for the Who once, which was a, which was a big deal for us. And um, you know, we made a record for RCA, and then five years later, kind of broke up. At that point, I was just kind of kicking around Philly, and uh, that's around the time that I met Carney. So, how did you meet Carney? Sure, um, a good friend of mine is a journalist. His name's Ken Sharp. I don't know if you know Ken. I do know Ken, um, yeah. Yeah. But, but Ken was, uh, Ken and I were friends in Philly, and he was going to interview Al Jardine. Al was playing with his Beach Boys family and friends thing at the time. This was 1999. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And they, they were playing in Philadelphia at a place called the Willow Grove Naval Base. It was a, an old naval It, it was like a, a, a package tour with, like, Moore was there, and um, the Rascals were there, minus Felix, whatever, you know, minus, minus the key guys. But I do remember Alex Chilton was there with the box tops, which was pretty cool. 
Um, and anyway, so I decided to cut, Ken invited me along. I said, sure, I'd love to meet, meet a Beach Boy. Because around that time, I started to, to really appreciate, uh, you know, pet sounds and, and, and that kind of stuff. That, that, it was all kind of new to me. I wasn't, I grew up on the Beatles more so than the Beach Boys, and I didn't really come to recognize the greatness until much later. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was around that time. So, anyway, so we were backstage, and I saw Connie, and there she was, and I just, you know, went up and said hello to her, and I remember having watched her talk show a few years prior to that, and I told her something like that. And we ended up, you know, all of us hanging out for the evening while Ken was interviewing Al, and I got to meet Al and Matt and everybody, Um, and it was really, everybody was very kind and and gracious, and, and we just went our separate ways, and I was looking to, So when you started, so when I looked at your solo album releases, um, there's two questions, you know, the first question I have is, you. we've talked about you learning guitar, but to pull off an execution of doing a full album by yourself takes not just uh, the ability to play multiple instruments, but takes, I think, uh, an incredible uh, amount of understanding mixing, uh, working with computer software, working with different, uh, you know, modulating your microphone. I mean, there's a whole lot that goes into recording an album. So did that come with at Berkeley? No, I didn't really learn about music production at Berkeley. I, I, I learned it, I guess, you know, in the field when the 90s came around, when I was in those, those bands that I was speaking about. Um, especially Wanderlust, we did a lot of recording. You know, we made uh, we made four or five albums. You know, only one for RCA, but but well, two for RCA. The second didn't come out for RCA. But anyway, I learned a lot about recording and writing and arranging and being in a band and knowing what the part, you know, knowing what the elements are and the importance of this and that and the other thing. All through that, um, we were really a song-oriented band and. Um, the integrity was very high, and, and the expectations to be, you know, write great songs was was foremost. So I kind of really absorbed all that in one shot. You know, all the, the mechanics of writing and recording and and playing and and like I said, all the different components that don't go that are involved with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been a tabletop drummer, so um, <laughs> I kind of translated that into actually pounding on on drums. Mm-hmm. Really, mm-hmm. when I had to. Okay. And, um, you know, everything else is just kind of intuitive, I guess. But, yeah, I mean, that's really where my education in terms of production came from was, was in the 90s with those bands. I, I saw from looking at the uh, 
the the fundraiser thing that uh, uh-huh. where you you did the video of you just with your acoustic guitar, and I see that there's a whole version of this that's just acoustic. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. So how do you build? Since you know it is one thing just to sit there sing, play the acoustic guitar, and have that as a production, but right. so when you're building a song. Um, how do you how do you start that pro? Which, I mean, do you? I'm sure it changes from song to song, where you may have an idea for a lyric about something or a song, and then then you have to craft the music around the idea. But take me through a process here. So the name of you, well, let's do Trouble again because that is the name of the album. So let's just do that song as an example, um, and and how that built itself. The whole record Trouble again is that all ten songs were all written first on acoustic guitar before, I mean, written start to finish before I ever recorded anything, which is kind of a different process because sometimes I will write a song as I'm recording it. You know, I'll get to, you know, a verse and a chorus and then not have anything after that and then just kind of build it from the recording I've had. You know, it's almost like an all-encompassing thing. Um, But with Trouble, again, like I said, I had all the songs written on acoustic guitar. And... um, Let's just say, yeah, with, with specifically Trouble Again, I had a general idea of the instrumentation. I wanted, you know, the electric guitars left and right, and an acoustic guitar, and a lot of keys. Uh, so I would start with a click, lay down the click, and then put an acoustic, just a rough sketch of the form. Um, after I have that down, I will lay real drums down. Um, from there, I will probably add electric guitars and a scratch vocal, and then just really just build from there. Um, Mm. I never really see recording and mixing as two different things because I'm always doing it at the same time. Like As I'm putting the drums down, I'm tweaking everything around it, and then by the time I'm done the process, the song is pretty much there and done. Okay. Um, Okay. There's not really any hard and fast, rules that I apply in terms of I have to do this first, that first, or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, it just kind of it just kind of comes together and falls together organically. Summertime stars line got that open window feeling again. Heat at night, neon light, I've come alive before the day settles in. But when the dream
maintain consistent harmony But once or twice if I could only break the vice I'd set my true
saying enough to bring us song rob i mean that that is uh i really feel like there now if you just tell me oh it just came as an idea and i did it (laughs) i'll be i'll be a tad disappointed because it sounds like there's something really really there so i'm very intrigued by that song because it's it's gorgeous sure thank you thank you thank you very much um it kind of just came as an idea no um you know there's there's in, in all the songs I've written, there's certainly elements of self-reflection and, and whatever. Um, that is no exception in terms of, you know, um, everybody has relationships and everybody has rough patches and they work themselves out and they work themselves through however they do. Um, that song, I mean, like a lot of the songs I, I've written began with, you know, with wordplay, not with any subject or anything in mind. And it kind of grew from there. Um, I wish I could. <laughs> I wish I could romanticize it more. But <laughs> no, it's you know what it's that's. I think that's the beauty of music and its subjectiveness. Yeah. You know that's that, that that I love about music too. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I always envy writers like Bruce Springsteen who could write stories that you know have clear beginnings and clear you know arcs. And I can't. I, I find that difficult to write like that, for whatever reason. I can write. I, I come from a subconscious kind of place where I know something. It means something. I just don't quite know what until it's finished, and then I can kind of stand back and say, "Well, that could be. That could be this, this, or this." Mm-hmm. But that also leaves it open to interpretation for the listener. I would hope. Um, but yeah, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just it's a. Um... Well, sure, love over hurt rhyme, you know, works uh, lyrically better than hurt over love because that'd be a little trickier to to, to rhyme. <laughs> um, but um, it just it, it 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 just a really nice, and this is true with every song on the album. There's there's a there's a um, the lyrical, uh, for lack of a better term, rapping 
of the mm-hmm. not not like rap music, but I mean the way that the lyrics wrap themselves around the music, the way that they are married together. Yeah, it's it's really it's really I'll use the word I'm thinking, which is beautiful. It's it's really beautiful. You know that I I had just bought one of those Roland Juno one oh six and that's what you hear, that's a lot of the synthetic pad in there. And that really just kinda harkens back to my those halcyon days of, you know, discovering music. It was the eighties or whatever and I just have a melancholy love of the past like that. So I, I try to I try to express that in sound or, or in a feeling or whatever and I think that kinda sort of I was happy with how that came out. Yeah, I think that must be what I've been connecting, because, I, you know, <laughs> doing what I do and reporting on the people that I do, I'm obviously a nostalgic guy because I, I cover, <laughs> you know, old music. <laughs> but, uh, so I'm I'm one of those people who really, I always enjoy, uh, you know, I think, but like I started the conversation, I, I really enjoy discovering, especially if it's new. That it reminds me, it has a, a an essence of it that that even though it's brand new, it doesn't. It's fresh and everything, but it doesn't sound necessarily brand new. It sounds like something that maybe has been kind of distilled and curated over time that we just haven't heard until now. Yeah, and I think in that in that respect, it is like you've brought your life experiences with you, and they're playing themselves out in the way of these ten songs. Well, it's, it's, it's entirely true. I mean, yeah, if, if I'm, yeah, that's that's where it's coming from for me. So I'm glad that you you, you are able to grasp that as well. So. Oh, 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 oh,
is done This heart was always meant to run And this comes to be Each time I see to thank my special guest today, Rob Bonfilio. Rob, thanks for taking the time. And if you're going to see Brian with Al Jardine and Blondie Chaplin on the road, you're going to obviously see Rob up there on stage with Brian performing some of Brian's greatest hits, or depending on which date you catch him, maybe Pet Sounds in its entirety, or if it's later in the year, into late December, late November into December, you could even uh, you may even get this, a chance to see Rob doing the Christmas album with Brian. So that's pretty cool. So I hope you get to see him. If you do see him, please say hello. And in the meantime, if you do get a chance to say hello, I really recommend you just grab this album, Trouble Again. Just pick it up. Just again, it's out there, you know, on the streaming services, but. You know, I'm I'm old fashioned. If you if you know anything about me, you know I'm old fashioned. You like I, I actually like to have the CD. And now this is interesting too. Is as Rob talked about, Trouble Again is available two different formats. It's available as the regular CD with all the instrumentation, like we've heard today. Also, it's available as acoustic only. So these songs, these wonderful songs, and there's ten in all. He also put out a a kind of alternate album with a slightly alternate cover. The the regular album is is dark with blue and white lettering on top, but the alternate cover is white. Okay, so it's it's or I should say it's not quite white. It's off white. It's eggshell colored. But you'll get the, you you'll see it right away, and you'll see it's the acoustic version. So it's really easy to tell them apart. But uh, listening to both, it's just, it's neat. It's kind of like, um, if you're a fan of the Beatles, uh, it's kind of like Let It Be and Let It Be Naked. It's that kind of difference. It's that stripped down experience. Or like the Beach Boys Party, more appropriately. Uh, The acoustic version of Rob's Trouble Again. So please pick this up. You're, you won't be disappointed. And really, what, you heard today, what you've heard here is just a taste it's it's really, really good stuff. And again, if you see Rob on the road with Brian, be sure and say hello. Uh, in the meantime, I do want to remind you, uh, we're actually doing a very special edition of the Brian Wilson uh, 1988 solo album. You know, with a quarterly publication on the summer quarterly, it kind of gets tricky from time to time to time everything and to comprise everything within a 48-page you know, booklet. So our brand new website's up, so please visit esquarterly.com. And if you want to get on our email list to get our e-blasts for news in between actual print editions, then if you look at the site and you look up in the top right-hand corner, just click on there and you can automatically, it'll automatically let us know that you want to be signed up for that list. Also, um, the website's no longer a relic, thank goodness. You can view it on your mobile tablet or desktop computer, wherever you may be. And we're, we're really glad we finally got that up. <laughs> 
took us a long time, but it did actually go live in July. So that's up now. Uh, and we post news. We post letters to the editor there. So like, um, so this, br- this brand new edition of Endless Summer Quarterly is going to be available in early November. And it's only by subscription until January of 2019. So if you have a subscription Endless Summer Quarterly, you're good to go. If you don't, you need to hurry. <laughs> and uh, it's got brand new interviews, a forward from Brian himself. We just talked on October 29th on the phone. He provided me with a brand new forward for the uh, the article. A uh, quick introduction from Peter Ream, Beach Boys historian. Then I interview Lenny Warnaker, Seymour Stein, uh, David Leaf, uh, Andy Paley, Russ Teitelman. Uh, so it's, it's really something special. And there's an article from Dominic Priori. And a sessionography from Craig Slowinski. So all the usual suspects are kind of there. And it's special. It, it is. It's, uh, it, was, it was really quite uh, revealing to kind of revisit that music, revisit that era, um, and try to just kind of get... Um, oh, and Mark Lynette, don't let me forget him. Just kind of get into the, you know, into the, into, into the music-making process. Because that's what's most important in all of this. And the fall edition was just printed, you know, uh, the beginning of, uh, of uh, late, actually late September. Time's running together here. And that edition focused on, it said, the path to Kokomo and beyond. And I think people are, th- I, you know, if you're a fan of Brian Wilson's and you think that because he wasn't on Kokomo that that edition of Endless Summer Quarterly may not be in- of interest to you, I think you'd be surprised. I really do, because here, here's what I'm going to tell you about that edition. First of all, Brian was on the Spanish version of Kokomo, sings backing vocals, and he and Carl and their mother, Audrey, were together on that specific day when he recorded those vocals. So that's a neat little side story. That's one of the things I learned when pulling this all together, the fall edition, which is about Kokomo. But the Beach Boys working with Terry Melcher, here's, here's what I want to say about that, because this is important. If you have Ry Cooter, Jim Keltner, and Van Dyke Parks together on a track, does that interest you? It interests me, because those are, those are really important music makers right there. Now, if you add Terry Melcher, who produced The Birds, I'm still pretty interested. Then if you tell me, hey, Papa John Phillips co-wrote the song, I'm very interested now, from the Mamas and Papas. And then if you were to say to me, oh, and Scott McKenzie, you know, he wrote... If you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear some, fl- you know, some flowers in your hair. That all sounds interesting to me. And guess what? That's Kokomo. All those people played on Kokomo. That, that song, and then getting the story as to why real drums weren't used and how Jim Keltner experimented on the drum track, what he did to experiment on the drum track, and how Brian was actually involved, not just on the Spanish version of Kokomo, but on the song Make It Big. There's a, there's a neat picture. There's a great interview with Keith Weschler, who was the engineer at the time from 86 through the Summer in Paradise album. And so the period of the fall edition of Endless Summer Quarterly covers 1986 to 1989, which kind of goes to the Still Cruising album. And there's a lot there. There's a real lot of interesting backstory there that kind of peripherally explains Brian's involvement. And, it, and he was involved. And also, it explains Terry Melcher's hand, his guiding hand, on the Beach Boys and their success during that time. 
it's a lot to take in and it was it was really it was really satisfying to put that edition together as much as it is to put the Brian Wilson edition together because those two are companion pieces really you read about the Kokomo period what the Beach Boys were doing with Terry Melcher and Brian's involvement and then you read this new edition that's coming out all about the Brian's 1988 solo album and you get these two companion pieces And the last thing I want to tell you about Endless Summer Quarterly is we're actually doing a free issue. We're going to be adding this holiday season. We don't actually have a date yet, but I I hope to have that soon. Um, And that's going to be a free, downloadable, full-color, kind of like a tour program. Not a tour program, but kind of similar to one. It's going to be a book, a full book, on the making of Mike Love's new album, Reason for the Season, with interviews with Mike his family members, because they're all over it, and some of the band members that are in the Beach Boys band. So it's going to be special because, and I, and I tell you I use that word special, what makes it special is I've been listening to Mike's Reason for the uh, Season album now for roughly three weeks. And I have to say that it's very similar to me. It's got two kind of feels to it. The last half of the album, the last five songs, are just covers of like Oh Holy Night, uh, you know, classic, classic uh, old, old style Christmas songs. And, and I have to tell you, it's almost like the Carpenters' Old Fashioned Christmas. It's, it's just very warm and friendly. And uh, you kind of just find yourself, you know, it's the type, it's the type of uh, sequence of songs where you just wish, you, you know, you just want to be in front of a fireplace, sipping a glass of wine, um, and listening. And it's, so it's really nice. It's a really nice holiday album. And there's a couple of new songs, three new songs. One in particular, Must Be Christmas. And we're going to get into that in an upcoming episode. The next episode, episode 27, will be very soon. It'll be with Al Jardine talking about Al's A Postcard from California LP coming out on blue vinyl exclusively for Record Store Day, which is going to be on Black Friday, Friday, November 23rd of this year. So, Watch for that. If you didn't know that already, be sure if you collect vinyl and you like Al's Postcard from California album, which it came out and it came out digitally back in 2010, then physical CD in 2012, and now it's going to come out on LP after all this time. And I love that album too. There are some really gorgeous moments, and Brian's on it, David Marks is on it, uh, of course, Matt and Adam are on it, San Simeon is out of this world, the title track is pretty awesome, especially when you consider Glenn Campbell's no longer with us, and he sings on that track with Al. So uh, be sure to look for that on Black Friday, November 23rd, Al's Record Store Day vinyl, blue vinyl, of... A postcard from California. Thanks for tuning in. You know, I do tend to ramble on, but I just wanted to bring everyone up to date and look for episode 27 real soon. And once again, my thanks to Rob Bonfilio.